Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone in the venue. Thank you for enduring that announcement as we talk about text to give. Really appreciate Pastor Scott doing that. Scott's been on our staff now for eight months, and he is doing an awesome job as our executive pastor. It's just been tremendous to work with him for me personally. Yeah, you can clap for him. You know, we take just a minute to talk about that piece, text to give, not to be weird. Sorry if it felt weird. Don't mean to be weird about money. Uh, It's just a reality that statistically people under about age 28 or 30 are not carrying a checkbook anymore. You know that? If you have kids that are in that demographic, you probably know that. And we really believe that part of spiritual vitality is learning the discipline of generosity and the discipline of generosity to your church. And we know there are a lot of young people that want to give to our from here to there, that there icon on their phone, but haven't really been given a mechanism to, to do so. And so this is our way to give people a mechanism to do, that, do so and also to kind of keep up with the times as uh, the ways people give today are vastly different than the ways they were given even five, ten years before. So uh, thank you for your generosity to our church. We have a very, very generous church, and we're so, so grateful for that. Uh, Thank you for enduring that announcement. Don't mean to be weird about this, but this is part of just the world we live in now, and then kind of uh, trying to help people toward this very important biblical discipline of generosity. So thank you for that. Uh, I want to echo Scott's comment on the graduating seniors. We have an amazing senior class here at this church. Pastor Jordan Heinrichsen's done an amazing job with them, as have so many volunteers and some great displays out there. Please take a few moments after the church and uh, see them and congratulate the, those students and continue to pray for them as they go out to make a difference in our world. We are continuing, excuse me. That feels better, I think. Eric, is that all right? Okay. We are continuing our series here, though, this morning, When Empty Means Full, and we got started with it this past Sunday as we launched off our Easter series, uh, focusing on the resurrection, When Empty Means Full, and this is going to be a four-week series, though, that takes us through uh, the chapter 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're going to be today and the next three Sundays as well. If you're not sure exactly where that is in your Bible, you can use your table of contents and the verses will be up on the screen as we go as well. But let me begin well with this question uh, as we uh, look at the resurrection here with 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Do you have a favorite book or series of books that you like to read to your kids when they were young? Any examples? Good night, moon. All right. Any others? What was that? All right, Dr. Seuss, yeah, okay. I hear him shouting over from the venue, but you're coming in a little bit muffled right now. My favorites to read to my boys are the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, and I've been reading them to each of the boys over the past years. Elijah and I are almost completely done well with those seven books. Silas and I are right now on... Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is by far my favorite in the series, but they're all fantastic. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you ever read that book by C.S. Lewis, it's an absolute classic. If you haven't read it, you've got to read it. You've got to read it well with your kids. 
Even if you don't have kids in the home anymore, you you can read it yourself. But at the end of that book, it's this beautiful allegory of Christ and overcoming evil. And Christ is represented by Aslan, this great lion. And evil is represented by the white wicked witch in the forest. And uh, she is defeated at the end, but she thinks that she's won. Because she killed Aslan at the great stone table. And Aslan dies at the great stone table... And the kids, Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Susan, are all crestfallen until on the third day he rises from that stone table. And he appears to to these kids and there's one named Susan who says to him, "Uh, are are you a... uh, uh?" And she can't really bring herself to say what she's thinking and her voice is shaking. She can't say, are you a ghost? And then... He says to her, no, I'm Aslan. I'm risen. And he comes to her and licks her face. This great lion licking her face. And in that moment, she feels his breath and feels his mane around her face. And all of her doubts dissolve in that moment. And she throws herself on Aslan's mane and kisses him and hugs him. And all of her doubts are no more. It's this beautiful portrait of resurrection. But then she asks this question as she's interacting with her siblings. What does it all mean? Yes, he rose from the the stone table, but, but, but what does it all mean? And I love that Susan asked that question because in truth, many of us ask that question about the resurrection. We call ourselves... Easter people, we call ourselves resurrection people, but here in 2019, many times, well-thinking Christians don't really understand what the resurrection means, what import it has for us theologically, and what import it has for us applicationally for our lives in 2019. We know the cross covers over all of our sins, but the resurrection, we're sometimes a little bit confused What difference does it actually make for our lives today, and what difference does it make theologically to us? And so we're talking about that over these next few weeks, when empty means full. We know last Sunday on Easter, when the tomb is empty, if the tomb is empty, then our trust in God is full. Our faith is full, our trust in God is full, as we talked about last week. If the tomb of Jesus is indeed empty, then we trust everything that he says about himself. He said that he is God, and we believe by faith Jesus is indeed Lord, just as he said. Everything he says about himself is true. Everything he says about us, we are who he says that we are. And that breeds a sense of confidence and stability for life, that because he conquered the grave... Also, whatever else he says is true, the scriptures are reliable and we can trust him. That breeds confidence and stability for life. If the tomb is empty, our trust in God is full. Let's begin here with 1 Corinthians 15 as we are reviewing a little bit from last week. But 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 speaks to our trust in God and what it is actually that we are believing in read this passage last week, but it's a summary of the gospel, and so it deserves another reading here this morning, starting with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, 
which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. By this gospel, this is what forgives you, this is what brings you to life everlasting, this is what brings you into God's family. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firm to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. you got to believe in the right things. You can't just have belief in belief. You can't just have faith in faith. You can't have faith in yourself or faith in a God of your own making. It's belief in this and believe in the God that is revealed in Scripture. Otherwise, it's belief in vain. I hope you believe that today. For what I received, verse 3, here is the gospel. Here it is. For what I received, I passed on to you as of very first importance that Christ died for our sins. Here's the gospel. Christ died for your sins. As it was promised, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that, amazingly, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. That's it. That's the gospel. Now, friends, this is really important that if you have a son or a daughter, a grandson or a granddaughter, a neighbor that asks you, what is it to be a Christian? What does it mean? You take them right to this passage and explain it to them right here of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. This is the basic gospel message by which we are saved. And it's through this faith that we have trust in God. Our faith is strengthened and we have more confidence for all that we experience in life. Here's a little definition of the gospel that I've used many times in this room. And we'll just unpack it for a moment together. The gospel is the good news. In fact, that's all the word gospel in the original Greek language means. It just means good news. Are you a purveyor of the good news? When people think of you as a Christian, do they think, oh, she is an instrument of the good news. When I'm around her, I feel something different. It's good news. That's what it means. The gospel is the good news. Of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his perfect life, his vicarious death, his resurrection from the grave that he lives forevermore, which freely pardons sinners. I've got to hold on to this. We are sinners by birth. And the gospel freely pardons us from our sins, both by nature and by choice. We naturally are sinners, and then by choice we are sinners. And the gospel comes in through Jesus on the cross, and he pardons us freely by his grace. He forgives us, and not only does he forgive us, then he welcomes us into his family, welcomes us into his love and into his presence. You are welcome into God's love and into his presence as you receive the gospel freely by grace, not by any of our own merit, not by any good deeds that we do, lest we boast, nor by any bad things that we would do, lest we despair. If you live in your good deeds, you'll be prideful. If you live in your bad deeds, then you'll despair. Live in neither. Live in the gospel. And then you have freedom. Then you have freedom. Okay, this is the basic gospel message, and we have to have this on the tip of our tongues All the time. We have to live in it daily. It's not for us on a one-time basis. It's for us on an everyday type basis. Is anyone with me this morning? Without faith, there is no stability in life. This triggers faith. Today, we're going to talk about the power of the resurrection for stimulating hope. All that was revealed. A little bonus for you. 
Okay, the power of the resurrection to stimulate faith, but not today. The power of the resurrection to stimulate hope. Because without hope, we have nothing to look forward to in life. A life without hope is like bones without marrow. It's lifeless. It's brittle. It's breaking down. And we know many people who are living that way. Perhaps you're living that way today. So glad you're here that you get to hear about resurrection hope even this morning. In in English, the word hope, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. In English, the word hope just kind of means a a wish. I, I really hope that the Huskers will do great in 2019. Amen, I heard. (laughs) Scott Frost's sophomore year is, I I hope, I hope. I hope. Yeah, it really, it may be. I hope it is. That's that's English for hope, right? Come on, we can say this with each other. Uh, Biblically, hope is more like our farmer friends around us who say, yeah, it's really wet out there. The land is still really wet, but I've gotten the seed in the ground for three straight decades, and I'm sure I'll get it in this year. That's biblical hope. Do you see the difference? It's not, I I really, really hope it goes this way. I wish maybe it'll go. It's like, I have a confident expectation. I may not be 100% sure, but I have a confident expectation that this will come to pass. Okay? That's biblical hope. It's a confident expectation that this will come to pass. And that's what we're going to read about in the remainder of 1 Corinthians 15 as the Apostle Paul speaks to a church in Corinth, Greece, about biblical hope related to our future. I want to tell you as I read this passage, starting in verse 17 and going through verse 32, that it's a doozy of a passage. It's long and it's complex, and you're going to need to pick it apart together with your life groups this week. It won't be enough just to pick it apart with me here, though, this morning. You need to get into it a second time, though, this week with your life groups and in your families. It's it's really not enough when we look at these older passages that are really complex to only get them once on Sunday morning. we got to be in the Scriptures during the week, picking them apart and understanding them for for ourselves probably at least two times to really understand what, what this means. So I hope you do that with your life groups, your family, though, this week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 17. All of that with the backdrop, the hope that we have in Christ, the faith that we have in Christ based on his resurrection. Verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. This is the result. If Christ has not been raised, they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. We're just believing a lie if he hasn't been raised. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, the first one of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus Christ. Follow his train of thought. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ All will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him and put everything under him, God the Father, so that God may be all in all over everything. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are being baptized for the dead? Paul asks. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, where he's writing from, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, as we open up this passage, I confess that I need your help. This is a, a complex passage with great import for our lives, great import for our understanding of our future, and we ask, God, that you would help us. Please teach us from your word. Give me clarity to boil it down. I admit that I don't have what it takes. I, I am not special here. So, Father, use even me, a, a weak vessel, for your great gospel proclamation and enliven our hearts with the hope of Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen. This passage is saying that the hope of the resurrection in a world such as ours is two things that we'll hit, hit on today. It's two things. The hope of the resurrection in a world such as ours is the promise of the death of death and the promise of the death of evil. First, it's the promise of the death of death. The resurrection promises the death of death. You, you see, the crucifixion of Jesus deals with the past. It's Jesus' pain for all of our past failures, but the resurrection of Jesus deals with our future. It's Jesus as the foretaste of our future glory. The Corinthians were these baby Christians. They're in Greece, and again, Paul is writing from another city in Ephesus, would be modern-day Turkey. The Corinthians are in Greece, and they are baby Christians. And like other babies we've known, they're messy. Okay? Newborns are messy, aren't they? They're just about always messy. And newborn Christians can get a little dirty too. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just where we all are when we are newborn Christians. And this church was so messy, it would make our church look like tied with bleach. It was a dirty, messy church, and they believed all kinds of weird things that Paul is trying to fight against even in this passage. They believed in the cross, actually, to forgive them, but it remained really difficult for them to believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave physically in time and space, and that would be a forerunner of their future resurrection as well. Indeed, in Greek thought of the day, the body was considered evil, and the spirit or the soul was considered good. And so the body was considered kind of a throwaway. Indeed, in the, the capital city of Greece, Athens, there was a motto that hung in the center of the city square that went like this. 
once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there's no resurrection. That's what it said in the center of City Square in Athens. It's the centerpiece of their belief that you live up this world, you live up this life, and then you die, and that's it. There is no resurrection. So Paul is marshalling in evidence throughout chapter 15 of the resurrection in which he says repeatedly, you got to understand, Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, then your faith is futile. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. If there is no resurrection, then death wins. If there is no resurrection, then the sting of death is the sting of death And that's it. The stakes are really high. And so he says again and again, if there isn't, this is what you are accepting. This is the consequences of your belief. Amongst the more bizarre things that the Corinthian, very, very young Christians were doing was baptizing living people vicariously for dead people. That's a head scratcher. Okay, that's what they were doing in Corinth. Even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, they're kind of like... Well, just in case there is a resurrection, let's do some baptism of living people vicariously to pay for the sins of our dead family members and friends, which is nowhere taught in the Bible, okay? (laughs) Nowhere taught in the Bible. And no Christian church has ever practiced that. Mormons do practice that. Really weird, okay? But that's nowhere taught in the Bible, And here is Paul refuting that, saying, like, why are you doing this if you don't even believe in resurrection? You see, baptism is made for the living, not for the dead. We're baptized in Christ as an outward representation of the inward reality that the moment we become Christians, the moment we believe the gospel I just put on that that screen, that the Holy Spirit infills you. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which doesn't give you the gift of tongues necessarily or any of that. It just fills you with the Holy Spirit. You all, if you're a follower of Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit right now. That is baptism. And this inner baptism that results in an outer baptism, we say, I would be identified with Christ in the waters of baptism because he's baptized me on the inside with the Holy Spirit who is now in me. Baptism is for the living right now. Now again, because many in his audience didn't believe in the resurrection, what they were doing was just adopting that old Greek uh, philosophy called Epicureanism. Long word. Which just means eat, drink, and be merry because then you, you've all heard that, right? Have you heard it? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry because then you die. Now fortunately, that philosophy is the thing of the past. Oh, oh, okay, maybe not. I mean, I kind of understand that philosophy, to be honest. I was talking with Pastor Scott about, the other, about this the other this week, and, and, and we both kind of agreed that if Jesus hasn't been raised far from the grave, if we didn't actually believe that Christianity is true, maybe we would be that. Because this world is all we got. Our three score and ten is all we got, so we might as well live it up and eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy as much as we possibly can enjoyment because then we die. Now, even that would not be wise, even if you don't believe in the resurrection, because inevitably, if you do that, that has dire consequences. It puts your life on this incredible roller coaster of living from one pleasure to another pleasure until all of a sudden it turns into addiction. 
and then to another pleasure, and then to despair. But many people are living that way today. Tragically, many Christians are living that way today, just constantly eating in the banquet of the table of this world, which includes food and drink, but not just food and drink anymore. It includes constantly eating into a banquet of video games and TV and movies and Netflix and and on and on, just more and more, more and more, more and more consumption, which will kill you. It will kill your faith. There is nothing that kills faith quicker than Epicureanism. Eat, drink, and be merry. That will kill your faith. It will destroy discipline. It puts us in a spiritual stupor laden with despair. But the Bible, fortunately, God gives us something better to live on. The Bible has tremendous value for us here because it says, contra a Greek philosophy that says our bodies don't matter, the Bible says, no, your body matters a great deal. Your body's so important to God for at least two different reasons. What you do with your body matters so much. And one of them he hits on a few chapters before in 1 Corinthians 6, and it's this. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Did you know that? Did you know that when you looked in the mirror this morning, you were looking at the temple of God? I know some of you are laughing inside. I mean, I looked at myself in the mirror and I laughed. <laughs> Could this be the, the <laughs> that's comical, seriously, when you think of it. Is this the temple? Yes. This ugly thing is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not on your own. The Holy Spirit is in you. You are bought with the price of Christ's blood. Therefore, honor God with your body. You see, what we do in these bodies matters so much. It's an opportunity for us to reflect the character of God to the world around us and to take the good that God has given. God makes good stuff. He doesn't make any bad stuff. He doesn't make any bad stuff. Let's put that to rest. God made good stuff when he made you. And so what we do in these bodies, it matters. A great deal because these bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and God gives value to us in what we do in these bodies. And second, these bodies, believe it or not, are made for eternity. Yeah, we live our three score and ten here, but these bodies are made for eternity. Look at verses 19 and 20 up on the screen. This comes from the message paraphrase of the Bible, and I think it states it really beautifully as we consider the goodness of the body that God has given us and why we have hope that we would say, yes, death will be conquered and our bodies matter and that's why that's part of the reason we take care of them. He's going to resurrect our bodies. Listen to this. If we all get out of Christ, if, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot, aren't we? That's what he says. We're a pretty sorry lot if all we get is a little inspiration for a few short years. But the truth is, that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries, who are going to leave the cremation urns, who are going to leave the war battlefields where they never got to come home. We are the first fruits of those who have died in Christ and one day will be raised up with him for glory forevermore when he returns again. We're the first fruits. Excuse me, he's the first fruit, we are the harvest. 
He's the first fruit. We are the harvest of what he's going to do. You see, we were never made for death. We were never made for death. Death was not part of God's original plan. Death came into the world through the first man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, when they brought in sin, and then we did a really good job of following them in that. And sin is then spread throughout the world, so death is everywhere. I'm not looking at you, I'm looking at me. But then Jesus comes in as the next representative, and that's part of Paul's train of thought here. And through his vicarious death for us, as our representative, we are now identified with him. And he is the first fruits of your future glory. More on that next week, but needless to say for right now, our bodies matter greatly to God. And God will one day restore our bodies so that they'll be like his glorious resurrected body. And the upshot of all that is that ultimately speaking, maybe not right now, but ultimately speaking, death and decay have lost their sting. Now, that's that's easy to say, isn't it? It's hard to really believe that. It's easy to say when my body's pretty healthy right now, but it won't always be that way. But I got my creeks too. It's not so easy to hear when your body's failing you. And you don't have confidence that your body is going to get better. But one day it will. Not on this side, but one day it will. And that's not that easy to hear when you've recently buried a loved one. A friend or a family member, someone that you've been very close to. And death has an incredible sting for us in this world. And we are wise not to sugarcoat it. Because sometimes the death of a loved one is not just the death of someone that we've cared for for a long time, but it's the death of companionship. And it's the death of a dream. And for some of us, it's even been the death of our happiness for a season. But you've got to remember, you were never made for death. And one day, death will be overturned. And Jesus tasted death. And we are wise to contemplate again and again that though we feel the pain of death and decay, Jesus also felt the pain of death. And the Father in heaven felt the grief of a father losing his child. And our Father would grieve with you if you've lost a child. And yet Easter is this helpful signpost that death is ultimately defeated and my God will not fail to fulfill his promise to you, his people. He will destroy death. Look at verse 24 again. It says, the end will come when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. At the end, when Jesus returns in glory, he's going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and all authority and all false powers in this world. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ's going to return. And when he does, he will bring us with him. 
will be resurrected from the graves with him at that point. And he will destroy all the pride and all the bloodlust of men. And he will overturn every act of injustice that's ever been committed. And he will destroy every evil authority. And you see, when Christ returns, the tyranny of evil, the tyranny of Satan will be ended. And joy and hope and peace and love will last forevermore. It will be the death of death and it will also be the death of all evil. The resurrection of Christ promises us this hope. The death of death. And it promises us this hope. The evil will not have the final word. There will be a death of evil. There will be a reckoning. It's really interesting that sometimes you have to almost convince modern and postmodern people that there is such a thing as evil. Have you ever met those people? Nebraskans are kind of common sense people, which I really appreciate. <laughs> I knew a lot of those people where I used to live. <laughs> no offense, you know. But Nebraska, I, I do appreciate that about Nebraskans very, very much. Common, like, do you read the newspapers? Do you watch the news? There's a lot of evil out there. We didn't need to ever convince our ancestors that there was such a thing as evil. You didn't need to convince people that went to war in previous generations that there was such a thing as evil. As you go to other nations that experience suffering firsthand on a day-in and day-out basis, you need not convince them that there is such a thing as evil. They see it all the time. Did you keep up with what happened last Sunday in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday? Just think about this for a minute. On Easter Sunday, three Sri Lankan churches that were bombed by terrorists and three other hotels where tourists were known to gather, worshipers on Easter Sunday primarily were targeted. And on that day, as they're going to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, over 350 of them were killed. 500 more were injured. Just think with me. Proportionally speaking, a country as small as Sri Lanka, you compare that to what happened in 9-11 in this country, that terrorist attack on Sri Lanka last Sunday, proportionally speaking, was over twice as large as what happened to America back in 9-11. That's what happened last Sunday to worshipers who were targeted because of their faith. You tell me there's no evil in the world. That is satanic. That's the only word for it. That is satanic. And you read about what happened in San Diego yesterday with another synagogue being shot up. And you think about so many other stories. And I like watching the news, reading, not watching, I like reading the news. And it probably gets the better of me at times. And if, if you like reading the news, you better hold the newspaper in one hand and your Bible in the other. Because you will lose hope quickly if you're only watching or reading the news. And my hope as I read the scriptures and I think about what happened in Sri Lanka last week is this. That historically when the church has been punched in the mouth and has chosen 
Not to trade evil for evil or insult for insult, but as 1 Peter 3 says, to trade blessing instead and to be the aroma of Christ to the people around them. And the church has risen up with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to bless those around them after they've been punched in the mouth. My hope is that the blood of these martyrs would turn into the seed of the church. And that's exactly what's happened historically across the Christian church. Up on the screen you'll see a portrait of a man named Tertullian who was a great theologian in North Africa in the late 2nd and early 3rd century. And he coined this beautiful quote, the blood of the martyrs, say it with me, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's my prayer for Sri Lanka right now, that out of the blood of these 350 martyrs would become the seed of a new church that would blossom in that nation in the most profound way because this is what happened in the Roman Empire when people cared more about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the expansion of the kingdom of God than their own lives. This is what happened in the Roman Empire. And still again today across the world, it can happen when people live out every person matters. When people live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that matters more than my own comfort, my little life. And so when I am punched in the mouth, I'm going to give blessing and goodness and the aroma of Christ and love world world without end, no matter what other people do to me. And I'm going to trust that God used that for the expansion of his kingdom. And I pray you're with me. Because this has historically been the way that God has grown a countercultural group of people to expand his church and to produce a living, abiding hope that is way bigger than our short years here. I have hope that God's going to do that in Sri Lanka. I have prayer and hope that God's going to do that in my wife's native India where we see the same thing happening there. I have hope that God might do that in the Middle East. And I have hope, second, because I know when Christ returns, he's going to wipe it all away. All evil will be overturned when he returns. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so whatever evil you might have faced recently, or even now, one day it'll be overturned. And we trust in that, we hope in that with the confident expectation that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to gather his church to him. And we're going to leave the grave and then we're going to reign with him for eternity. And he's going to overturn all injustice He's going to hand the kingdom to God the Father, who rightly owns it all. And in his hands will be all dominion and power and authority. And it will be good. Kingdom without end. Amen. So, Father, we're asking for that. We're asking that perhaps you would use us to expand your kingdom. We're asking, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people that want you more than our own comfort. We're asking, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of people that hope in you, no matter what evil or pain or suffering we might be facing today. And we would remember that if someone has done us wrong, 
God is the one who avenges and he is just and he will bring it to pass. And we pray that for our brothers and sisters who are grieving even this morning in Sri Lanka, a week later. We ask for those who have been attacked for no other reason than because they are followers of Christ. We ask God that you would protect them and that you would give them a hope for the resurrection of their departed loved ones. Father, we thank you that because the tomb remains empty, because you rose your son Jesus from the grave, we hold on to hope that is way bigger than our 70 or 80 years here on earth. We hold on to hope that will extend into all of eternity. And one day we will rise with others who have put their trust in you. And we thank you, God, that in the end, through your power, through your might, through your goodness, all will be good. We look forward to that with eager expectation even as we seek to be used by you and live lives of faith and hope today. Through Jesus we pray.